So we just want to start and welcome everybody here today. So today's ritual, history, and symbolism. And Kylie has pulled a lot of information together. So Kylie Smith is the archivist, our archivist, and so she's going to start us off. Well, this is our gig, so I am more excited than normal for this program. <laughs> and um, it actually took me a lot longer to pull together because I kept adding things. So we're going to do our best uh, to keep it a 30 minute program. Um, but we really, I think, could make it a year long course and still not cover everything. Um, so we'll do uh, that 10,000 foot view for everyone. When I started outlining this, I changed it a dozen times. I started with my own perceived priority. Um, then I tried to think of Kappa's priority when we're talking about ritual, history, and symbolism. But that wasn't really helpful either because everything is kind of on equal planes in Kappa. Um, so I thought we could go chronologically. And then like a good archivist, I of course have to break that down further into various groups. Um, so we'll help the viewers at home keep track of things with colors. Ritual will be dark blue, history will be gold, and what? symbolism what? will be light blue. <laughs> so one thing that's important to keep in mind is that not everything must be approved by a vote at convention, but in the early days, that was really the only way to get anything done. So you'll hear us mention lots of things that started with chapters, but then was adopted by the delegates at a convention at some point. And then sometimes things just appeared and were sort of agreed upon and started appearing regularly. So um, there isn't always record of an actual vote when something became official. So Denise, you can take this part. All right. Um, okay, so, um, so let's, we're gonna start with history. Nope. Ritual. And I, I'm sorry, ritual. We're actually going to start with ritual. Sorry. <laughs> there we go. I only have two choices and I picked the wrong one. Um, so I love the sentence in the book of ritual that explains how our patchwork of ceremonies pulled from various chapters and traditions and have been adopted over the years makes up our initiation. Um, it's, it is written that initiation brings the initiate into the tradition that is Kappa to take her place in its history through a timeline honored service. So what we're going to do is go chronologically, and we need to begin with initiation. So our founders obviously didn't initiate the way you and I do today. Those first four organizers, and remember there were four of them at first, Jenny Boyd, Lou Bennett, Minnie Stewart, and Anna Willett started, basically started the entire organization kind of with a nod and a smile, and probably the Victorian version of let's get it done. The first initiate, initiations were the first two initiates, and that was at Alpha Chapter, and they were held for Lou Stevenson and Sue Walker. For them and most of the rest of the early Alphas, they just heard the Constitution, raised their right hand, and swore to uphold it. That was it. But thanks to many Kappas out there and at Delta Chapter at Indiana University, they got us going with some of our ceremonies. So our WR ceremony came from Delta Chapter at Indiana in 1874 and was adopted by the 1876 convention. The knocking song also comes from Delta at Indiana. The Latin song comes from Ada at Wisconsin, and the call comes from Beta Beta at St. Lawrence. Um, history talks about that someone was visiting the chapter and the women were outside yelling so screaming, it was like the yell. And then it was eventually converted into the call. 
Um, and our Grecian robes came from Phi at Boston. The password and original grip came from the founders and were adopted by the 1878 convention. <laughs> but get this, the grip was eventually found out. So it was modified in 1884 to what we recognize today. So now we have a grip that's awesome, but it's, it's a little difficult even for our own current members to master. You know, we hear a lot about chapter families, big sisters, little sisters. Um, well, that mentor or supportive type of relationship was recommended by Phi Chapter at, at Boston and adopted by the 1890 convention. So that <laughs> system of families goes all the way back to 1890. Wouldn't it be funny if the founders had bigs and littles? <laughs> I guess it would be like just three pairs since there were only six of them. Um, anyway, the opening and closing of formal meetings came from Theta Chapter at Missouri, and that was adopted by the 1906 convention. That convention was a big one for ritual, as they also moved all of the secret matter that had been in the Constitution to an actual book of ritual. From this point forward, all secret matter has been in one place and in cipher. And it wasn't until 1920 and 1922 that we had our next ceremonies, the memorial service for convention and chapter use was recognized and accepted in 1920. And then in 1922, the pledging service was adopted. RR and a similar ceremony was used at Pi chapter at Berkeley as early as 1855. So when Pi was shut down, they actually went underground and they developed the RR ceremony but it wasn't officially adopted in 1924. So that's when we officially adopted that ceremony. I like that I have like a rainbow light going. <laughs> Let we go. Um, so then 12 years later, Fireside was adopted in 1936 and it incorporates older parts um, from other rituals from Delta chapter at Indiana. And then in later years, we saw the introduction of the passing of the light ceremony, as well as the milestone pin ceremonies for 25, 50, 65, and 75 year members. So that is ritual. So before we go now into history, I just wanted to say something about the ritual. So a lot of times I hear, um, you know, this is not how, this is how our founders did it. And so that's kind of what we wanted to show everybody is that our founders really, some of the main parts of the constitution are actually in part of our ritual, but those, that is what the founders really created. And then it was our members over time that created these different ritual ceremonies. The fireside itself came from parts of the, the old black room. So um, that was basically when they signed the constitution. So um, it's always just something to remember that that's, that is how our ritual um, has evolved over time. So now to history. Um, what we're gonna start focusing on basically are the printed efforts. Yeah, so our last actual bound history book was published in 1999, and it's titled History 2000, Kappa Kappa Gamma Through the Years. <laughs> Do you remember the one that you and Kay Larson and I were going to publish in 2020? We had big plans. Um, I think we started talking about it in 20, 2006. It was like right when you were president. Yeah, it was 2000. Yep, I know. If we, if for everything that we really wanted to include, it would have been about 1,200 pages, <laughs> um, but... Anyway, that didn't happen. And everyone <laughs> fussed about how expensive History 2000 was. Our 1200 book would be like 
$100. So, and, and then of course we have a pandemic in 2020 besides right. never would have thought that in 2000. <laughs> so that's when we decided the 1200 page history book wasn't going to work. We came up with Capipedia. Um, and that was our, our old, still somewhat in use um, history portal that holds all of the the chapter histories and lists of information. So instead of a book in 2020, Kappa published a double issue of our magazine, which was even better. Um, it highlights 150 Kappas who dared, and I love that issue. If you didn't get a copy or aren't sure where yours is, we have a few extras. Um, so feel free to contact me at headquarters and we'll see if we can get one in your hands. But it's also available <laughs> online. So it's great to read um, even electronically. So, but if we're going to start at the very beginning, Kappa Kappa Gamma has published three actual history books and four special history issues of the magazine. The first volume is titled Kappa's Record. It's a short history of Kappa Kappa Gamma fraternity. It is the earliest and smallest volume and was published in 1903 by Minnie Royce Walker DePaw. It's 67 pages long and it's about the size of a cocktail napkin. It's really small. So then to outdo that, the second is the largest volume, and it was edited largely by May Whiting Westerman from Sigma Chapter at Nebraska. It's titled History of Kappa Kappa Gamma from 1870 to 1930, and May lamented the fact that this 900-page tome was printed two years late. Um, and I'm not sure if you can see my air quotes around the word late, but it didn't come out until 1932, and she gave herself a hard time for it <laughs> for 900 pages. I think that's that's fair. Um, the very first copy was given to first Grand President Tade Hearts of Coons, which she later donated to the fraternity. And lots of copies include May's handwritten warning in perfect penmanship, read the history, buy the history, never write the history. Kylie, you and I were just saying that no matter how many times we've read May's history, we still find new things. Every and time. um yeah, this is so true. If you ever want to learn anything, you need to just pick up or look online on this history book. It's actually, it's all there, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, we all know that May's history is probably, it is my favorite actually, but the 1975 and 77 histories that were published in the key are pretty handy as well. Um, I also use those a lot. They were titled The History of Kappa Kappa Gamma, 1870 to 1975, to which uh, Clara... Clarol Wheeler also argued she thought it should be from 1930 to 1975, since she imagined um, it to be picked up from where May's book had left off. But our good friends Diane Selby and Kay Graff specifically worked to summarize some of what May included in her book and then brought the information up to date through 1975. Um, and they, in these, in these, um, magazines i mean you actually they, they even have fold outs um, that come out they're there it's actually they're really cool mm -hmm. and it's fitting that while the the research and the title for both volumes end in 1975 um Kay and diane agreed to have the second volume published in 1977 so two years later just like just like may did and we can't forget the next update to our ritual with the late Jenny Lacharte's history that was published in the summer of 1986 issue of The Key. Jenny was a Kappa at William & Mary and served as returning historian from 1984 to 1990. 
And then just as I came on the scene as a Heritage Museum intern in 2000, the fraternity had published and was doing a marketing blitz for History 2000, Kappa Kappa Gamma through the years. And that was edited by Gay Barry from Penn State, uh, Delta Alpha at Penn State. That's right. This volume is a beautiful and it satisfied the leadership's um, request at the time for a coffee table book that was filled with pictures. And I think it's a lot more user-friendly for some, and it still looks great on a coffee table. So altogether, our history books tell an amazing story of the progression of the fraternity. Each volume has its own flavor, and it's the flavor of the editor as well as her team, and reflects the interests and styles of the day. And some correct errors, unknowns, or uh, misunderstandings from previous volumes, like our founders, for instance, we have learned lots about them with the internet, Ancestry.com, things that Minnie Walker and May, May Westerman couldn't have even known at that time. So um, my advice to folks at home is to read them all, read all the history books, memorize them, and then let yeah. us know of any anomalies or conflicts of information that you come across, because we're always looking to correct the record, as it were. You're absolutely correct. So now we're going to try to move. So we went from history to ritual to history, and now we're going to move on to symbolism. So all of this research was pulled together by our friend Kay Larson when she was a fraternity history chairman in 2010, as well as another former history chairman, uh, Jenny Lasharte, as we talked about before. Um, and these aren't in chronological order, but in the order they appear in many of our official documents. So let me pause for a second and offer a bit of information before you get us started. Um, the word insignia, it's not used frequently, but enough, especially in Kappa, that most of us have heard it, but we may not be sure of the exact definition. So the word insignia is a Latin word, and it's a sign or mark of a distinguishing group, grade, rank, or function. It can be symbols of personal power or that of an official group or governing body. A symbol is a character or image that represents an idea idea, concept, or object. So our insignia is a bit more formal, and then the symbols are, well, symbolic, I guess. Okay, so that could possibly be clear as mud, but not to worry, because <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work through this. <laughs> so we're going to start from the beginning. <laughs> On October 13th, 1870, when our founders marched into chapel at Monmouth College to announce the founding of Kappa Kappa Gamma Fraternity, the insignia solely consisted of the badge, the golden key. And so today, uh, the insignia is listed in the fraternity's standing rules. Uh, if you're like me and hadn't noticed this big change, they used to be in the bylaws. So I went back to find them in the bylaws. <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, so you will indeed find them in the standing rules, understanding rule 6.5, insignia, fraternity, jewelry, and symbols. Um, and that's where all of them are listed, the badge, the coat of arms, the new member pin, um, a recognition pin, and official emblems for fraternity council members, district directors, content directors, leadership consultants, the National Panel and Conference Delegate, the editor of the key, and the executive director. Um, the designs of the insignia belong to the fraternity and are registered with the United States Patent and Trade Office. That's correct. So let's take a look at the badge. We know that the first 12 were designed by our founders and ordered from Lou Bennett's family jeweler, Stevenson's out of, Stevenson's out of Pittsburgh. 
We only have one that we know came from a founder and that's the pin of Anna Willett's pate. And it's in a frame display at headquarters. Those early badges weren't engraved with the owner's name, but by 1876, it was mandated that the badges have KKG in the, in the um, black enamel on the front and the name and the chapter of the owner engraved on the back. So now, of course, they're engraved with initials, chapter letters, and also with the date of the initiation. Our current jeweler is Herf Jones, and they bought our previous jeweler, Burr Pat Patterson and Ald. There are nearly 20 different uh, jewelers that have that we know of whom who have been contracted to make Kappa badges, including Stevenson's in Pittsburgh in 1870. So next is the fraternity coat of arms, not, not the crest, the coat of arms. To be clear, the crest is just a part of the coat of arms. It's the new member pin at the top, as well as the striped wreath just below it. That's it. That's the crest. Anyway, the council in 1904, in 1905 first discussed a coat of arms after which the committee was formed. Designs that were already being used were requested from all the chapters and various ideas were discussed through 1908, but shocker, no decisions were made. By 1909, another committee was appointed and the chairman was Margaret Brown Moore from Beta Gamma chapter at Worcester, and she's credited with the design. She worked with an authority on heraldry and ours, our coat of arms, is one of the only heraldically correct coat of arms among both the men's and the women's fraternities. And in fact, the key magazine <laughs> announced that both Margaret Brown Moore and um, the this expert that she worked with, um, neither of them would actually take credit for it. They were so humble, but they also didn't want to mess it up because heraldry is such a precise um, art form. And so uh, we give Margaret credit for it, but the, uh, the gentleman that she worked with also helped quite a bit. Um, so this coat of arms, this heraldically correct coat of arms, was adopted by the Grand Council in 1911. It was then presented as a color plate in the December 1911 issue of The Key, and then voting blanks were mailed to all chapters and associations. The vote would be the same as required for the granting of a new charter, so that requires five-sixths of the chapters and five-twelfths of, of the associations. The vote was completed by February 5th, 1912, and we had a new coat of arms. The only change came in 1912 when that convention voted to have, so the summer after February, um, that convention voted to have the key placed in the honor point of the shield, shaped and proportioned like our membership uh, pin. Prior to that, it was just the symbolic shape of the key. And then around 2009, actual Pantone colors were assigned to the coat of arms to help us achieve consistency in our graphics and design. So that was a fun project. So today we have a simple line art representation of the coat of arms that you saw on the cover of the um, standing rules. And those are also on the cover <laughs> of the bylaws. And you'll see that in other places. But the actual coat of arms and the steel dies for printing that were created by Cleora Wheeler back in 1912 have remained unchanged all of these years. So the next, this is one of my favorite, um, is the Fraternity Council badge. In 1889, just eight years after the fraternity adopted the Grand Council system of governance, small emblems of offices were created for each fraternity council member to wear. Designed to dangle beneath their officers' badges, these emblems have been worn by non-council officers when the original position was no longer a member of the council. 
From their appearance in eight, from their appearance in 1889 until today, only two of the first five emblems created, the President's Circle and the Executive Directors, formerly Executive Secretaries, Cross, still present, represent their original offices. Because council seats have changed or been reassigned, um, so they've changed. And like, if you know, we'll go over them, but like one is the editor of the key. And so that's, that was a standing committee. And so that person still receives that if we have one. So according to the standing rules, the official badge worn by the fraternity council members shall be flat, be a flat polished golden award key, one and one quarter inch in length and three eighths of an inch wide. The badge shall be the emblem of the fraternity council membership. Only members who have served or are serving on the fraternity council shall wear the badge. The badge worn by the fraternity president shall be set with white diamonds, including one white diamond in the center of the handle and the Greek letters um, KKG, incised in black enamel on the stem. A gold new member pin with three diamonds shall be attached as the guard to the badge. The badge shall be worn by the president during their term of office and passed on to their successor. The badge worn by other fraternity council members shall be set with blue jewels, including one blue jewel in the center of the handle and the Greek letters KKG incised in black enamel on the stem. The fraternity council members shall retain the badge following their term of office on fraternity council. Each member fraternity council shall have the emblem of their position attached to the stem of their badge. And with the structure change in 2008, a few were simplified. So we no longer have the director of alumni chapters, membership programs and edu education or standards. So now um, the fraternity council members wear the vice president's dangle. Um, and before I had asked Denise if we could make recommendations for dangles for the, the ones that are no longer assigned, like one for the archivist and museum director, maybe for the ritual history director. Um, you didn't go for that, did you? No, not exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and now, um, because our organization loves dangles and emblems, so now we have dangles and we have emblems for content directors and district directors. <laughs> So Denise is the official hoarder of all dangles and emblems. I was asking her how many she has. What did we come up with? Six? And you think your only competitor might be JJ, JJ Wales. So she has them for being a traveling consultant, a chapter consultant, the director of chapters, vice president, fraternity president, and now the ritual and history content director. What she corrected me is not a dangle, it is a guard. Is it fleur de lis or coat of arms? I couldn't remember. I don't know because <laughs> I'm kind of done with emblems and I don't have it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well, did I miss any? Do you have any other dangles? I don't think so. I think you got them. <laughs> All right, so let's cruise through these other items in the timeline. Now that we both had a chance to gush over our favorites of the coat of arms or the council emblems. Um, if you recall, we covered the new member pin and its history in a program last April, so we won't belabor that point, but it was suggested by Grand President Kate Sharp three different times and finally adopted in 1914. Um, so if you want change, you just gotta be patient. And then the recognition pin is like a miniature membership pin, and it's only five-eighths of an inch long and was used as early as 1912, but by 1946 was officially included among fraternity jewelry. That's one of those where I can't find record of them saying, 
all in favor of the recognition pin being official, say aye. Um, it just started to appear that way. Uh, oh, I have both 45 and 46. I'll clarify that date. I might have just mistyped. Anyway, on to you, Denise. <laughs> okay, so so then and as we talked about before, the official emblems for district directors um, are badge with a guard, um, as well as the content directors. There's also a badge with a guard that's provided for each of them during their term um, by the fraternity. And then the and then the content and or district directors may purchase the guard um, either when they're to hook onto their personal badge um, when they're done or during their term. Thank you for clarifying. So let's move on to symbolism. The symbols of the fraternity that appear in the standing rules are the colors, the flower, the jewel, the seal, and the banner. Now, do you know what other flowers and colors were considered before we agreed on these? I don't. I don't remember, but it's in that favorite history book of mine. So before we all agreed on dark and light blue in 1881, cardinal and cream and bronze and blue were suggested. So we could have been a lot closer to, to Chi Omega. Um, and I'm glad that we have blue and blue. And then in 1890, a committee on rituals suggested the fleur-de-lis or iris as our flower, as well as the sapphire as our jewel. It was adopted, and but not before others suggested for the flower the violet or the maidenhair fern. So it's already hard enough to order irises for Founders Day, but I can't imagine trying to find uh, maidenhair ferns for a Founders Day ceremony. Yes, thank goodness. I am good with the iris and our two blues. <laughs> So now the seal is pretty unique and also came from Delta Chapter at Indiana. It was, the it was first used by Delta Chapter to seal Lambda at Akron's Charter on June 10th, 1877. And we can't forget the larger than life grand seal that was made for our centennial in 1970 and displayed at many conventions for several decades. It was actually <laughs> yeah. the coolest thing to see at conventions. Yeah, and it hung out in my office for a while. And that poor dove, I think she has like 30 coats of paint on her. We just kept touching her up every time we <laughs> brought her to convention. And I think, was it at the, I wasn't at the 2018 convention. Was it there? I think we packed it. it yeah, I think it was put up in the corner but it was not at the 2022 convention. I think they have officially retired it and it won't be traveling anymore, which is too bad. It's truly so archival. Sad. Because just, um, just so you know, so it, the other places you see the seal are on your, if you go to your initiation certificate, you'll see the seal of Kappa Kappa Gamma there. And so um, that's why I always thought it was really neat to see it at convention because it was kind of a, you could, teach some of the new members that, that were there that that's actually, it is our grand seal and this is the other places that you find it. And another tidbit that's off script, um, if you read back through May's history, um, the 1932 history, it explains how chapters had epistolary steel seals to sign, uh, or I'm sorry, to stamp their letters, but they needed something even more universal and official. And that's when they said, all right, we need a grand seal, one that is totally different from what each of the chapters are using. So there are other designs of seals that chapters were using in those early years, and you can see images of them um, in that 1932 history which is pretty cool. All right, back on script. Yep, sorry. So um, <laughs> so our banner is our newest symbol, and it's, um, it is white satin with three Florida leaves and a golden key, and is carried by the convention processionals and recessionals every two years, as well as at other fraternity occasions. Sometimes we'll use it um, at behind um, in some installations of chapters. 
Mm -hmm. And it was designed by my good friend, the late Jean Elan from Beta New Chapter at Ohio State. She adopted it or designed it in 1976, and then it was adopted by the 1986 convention. And I once asked her what it was like to have one of her designs actually be listed in the official documents. <laughs> she just laughed humbly and said, oh, it feels rather nice. And then she went on to tell me about the time Frank Lloyd Wright stopped in for cocktails. <laughs> I remember that story. She's such, she was such an amazing woman. It was amazing. So that brings us to the end of our stated title. Oh my gosh, it's 430. The Ritual, History, and <laughs> Symbols of Kappa Kappa Gamma.